0: Good morning Church. Uh, good to actually see so many from across Grace Point. Uh, there are a few unfamiliar faces if i haven 't met you before i 'm huge uh, i 'm one of the pastors here at grace Point uh, and it 's good to meet uh, as one church as one church community, not just in worship but one church under god 's Word. If you have your uh, order of services, there is an outline and i 'm going to invite you to take that outline up it 's actually a first it 's the first one uh, when we gather as god 's people. We want to hear God speak, which is why we open the Bible. We want to hear what God has to say from His Word. And what I want to do is I want to spend some time this Vision Sunday, whoa, that's a bit loud, <laughs> opening up the Bible. And what I want to do is I want to look at our foundation as a church and the Christian life, uh, especially as we prepare ourselves for the coming months as we move into 2023. And the first thing I want to say to you, the last two years of COVID disruption uh, hasn't just been painful and exhausting. Many of us have experienced mental, emotional, physical uh, stress and anxiety. For the majority of us here, that's what we've experienced. It's also, over the last two years, it's also revealed uh, the foundation in most people's lives, in many people's lives, where they've put their hope and their security, where they've put their joy and assurance, where they've looked to find their peace and confidence. And so, like the seed that fell on shallow ground among the thorns, you know the parable Jesus tells, it looked like it was growing. It had all the external signs of a growing plant. But Jesus said, the worries and fears in this life and the deceitfulness of three things, wealth, health, and security in this life, because of that deceitfulness, it choked, it strangled the word out of their lives and they became unfruitful. That's from Matthew 13. And I want to say to you as a church community, that's actually what's happened in the last two years of COVID isolation. It's revealed the kind of soil that's present in people's lives, in those who call themselves the people of God. We've seen it all across our city in churches, which is why some people are gone in our church community. They've abandoned their faith because it was never really there in the first place. COVID just showed it up. Or even worse, they're still around, but they're living under the delusion that they can actually continue living the Christian life without a church community. And so they live the Christian life in isolation. And so in the early days of COVID, I actually said, I remember saying uh, to many of the staff at church, I said, God is actually sifting us as a church because under pressure... When worry uh, intensifies, when your wealth and your health and your security is threatened, the true nature of your faith will actually bubble up to the surface and overflow into your lives. It'll be revealed. The foundation is revealed. What you believe about God, His promises to you, His people and His purposes for you in those circumstances, it'll all be revealed in your lives. And certainly that's been our experience the last two and a half years. Which means in this room, we have either come out stronger, more mature, deeper in our walk with God and our walk with each other, or we have come out weaker, less mature, shallower in our walk with God and our walk with each other. Some even distant, and some we know in our church community have abandoned their faith. And so what I want to do with you this morning is to look at our foundation as a church and the Christian life, especially as we prepare ourselves for the coming months and the coming year, but it's also a foundation that you need personally to keep building on in your Christian life. A strong foundation is essential because it's going to hold you up. It'll give you rest and peace when you're exhausted and anxious. Uh, It'll give you the security you need when when the world around you gets shaken up. Uh, It'll keep you persevering. It'll give you staying power when the circumstances in your life are working against you. It'll guide your priorities when you're overwhelmed with competing choices. Get the foundation right and everything else will fall into place. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this under three headings uh, in your outlines and certainly in your Bibles as we look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Rejoicing in His grace. Remembering we belong. And resting in his presence. Now, if there's a thread that binds Ephesians 2 together, it's this it's all about what God has done. That's the foundation. We do nothing. He's done everything. All we can do is receive what He's done. Now, what happens is the Apostle Paul in these two chapters uh, is, is looking at what God has done for us, right? Chapter 1, chapter 2. Uh, and then when you get to chapter 3, which is not what we're looking at, in chapter 3, he looks at God's purpose for us in mission to the world. And then in chapter 4, he looks at God's purpose for us in ministry to each other, to the church within, Which is why chapter 2 is foundational. It is a foundational chapter because it is the foundation that helps us, that empowers us to do God's mission to the world and to carry out God's ministry to each other within the church, okay? But we're looking at the foundation. And so if you have your Bibles, verse 1 and verse 10, the first foundation that empowers God's purposes for mission and for ministry, notice, is grace, God's grace. And chapter 2 gives us one of the most expansive pictures of God's grace that you're going to find in the Bible. Um, Until you walk down into the absolute darkness of the valley God has saved you from, your heart will never be gripped by by the grace of God. Your heart will never be gripped by the heights of the light God has saved you to. And so this is how the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 actually works. Uh, it's a trip down into the valley before we ascend up the mountain. There are two realities present, what you were before and what you are now, okay? So verse 1 of verse 3, notice it says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin by nature deserving of wrath. You were dead, you were the object, the focus of God's wrath. That's your valley of darkness right there. And then notice verse 4 to verse 10. You notice what it says. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, he made you alive in Jesus. He raised you up with Jesus. And then he, he put you on a throne. He gave you a throne with Jesus to be made the object of his kindness, the object of his grace forever. That's how these verses work. Knowing what God has saved you from matters because it will infuse your heart with thankfulness, with gratefulness, whatever is happening in your life. You see, there is always reason for thanksgiving when you know what God has saved you from. But then knowing what God has saved you to will also then overflow your heart with joy and confidence in the face of anything life throws at you because you know what He has saved you to. You know, when COVID first hit, people were afraid. We were all afraid. Everyone is afraid of catching COVID, and people are still trying to avoid catching COVID because without the vaccine, it's likely you would die. Uh, I caught up with a friend uh, who was here from New York recently uh, who said that the psychological effects of COVID is still felt in New York City. Uh, people are in New York City, unlike here, are still wearing masks because it was one of the few American cities that was really, really hit hard the early days. Uh, remember the images of makeshift morgues in Central Park? Uh, my friend from New York City, who works for a church there, said to me, Everyone personally knows someone who died. Or they know someone who lost a loved one. And so the psychological effects are still felt in New York City. It's still a city where people are wearing masks. Now, the Bible's assessment is not just that you are dying, we are all dying. The Bible's assessment, notice these verses, it says you are dead right? Don't worry about dying because you're already dead. Look with me at verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. That's the Bible's way of describing what you and I were like before you became a Christian. You were dead in your transgression and sin. He doesn't say you were injured or sick, partially alive, trying to reach out for help. Uh, he, He doesn't say that you've strayed, you're lost, and somehow you're trying to find your way home. He doesn't say that you fainted spiritually and someone has to come over and, you know, fan you to revive you. No, he says we were dead men and women walking. We're living our lives not in a Godward direction, but a Godless direction. Absolutely powerless to change the situation in our lives. Completely helpless to do anything. We did not want to know God. We were incapable of responding to him. And verse 3 tells us the result is that by nature we were... Objects of God's judgment and wrath. Now, that's your destiny. That's your future. Here's the great irony, isn't it? People are afraid of dying, but the Bible says they're already dead in their transgression and sin. And a far worse future or destiny awaits them because they're objects of God's wrath. Have you ever realized this? You can be physically alive but spiritually dead, an object of God's wrath. Now, if you were locked up in a prison, you might groan and cry out for help. Uh, You might even say you're sorry. You might even try to make promises to be a better person. You might even ask God to be merciful. But what do you do if you're in a morgue? What can you do if you're dead? And the answer is nothing. You can do nothing about your condition, your situation, your state. You're dead. And you can do nothing about your future, your destiny, because the dead are powerless and helpless. And I've said this before. The Bible's view on the condition of your heart Your mind, your soul, your life apart from Jesus is that you're dead at the bottom of the ocean, 35,000 feet in the Marianas Trench. The weight of the water above you is six tons per square inch. It holds you down. You've been there all your life. You are decaying a lifeless corpse at the bottom of the ocean. You are dead. You cannot ask for help. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do anything. And so the Bible's perspective is not that you are drowning, you're caught in a rip and you raise your hand and you're yelling out to the lifeguard to save you, that is not the Bible's perspective. No, you're at the bottom of the ocean, lifeless, helpless. The Bible's perspective is that you and I are spiritually dead. And you know, sometimes people will say, and maybe if you're at school, you hear your friends say this, or maybe you're in the workplace, you hear your friends say this. God helps those who help themselves. Seventy-five percent of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves. A lot of Aussies believe that as well. The vast majority of people believe that the Bible actually teaches God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who respond to him. He saves those who are prepared to work. God saves those who put in the hard yards. But we read the very opposite here, don't we? Dead people cannot help themselves. Dead people can't save themselves. Dead people don't make any effort. The Bible actually teaches us the opposite. Not that God helps those who help themselves. The Bible teaches that God helps the helpless. Did you hear that? God provides for what's missing in us, life. God saves the powerless by giving them life. God resurrects the heart and the mind. Your heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. Your darkened mind is actually illuminated. It's given understanding. So what God does is he enables us to respond to his love. And so look at what Paul says, verse 4 and verse 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. He resurrected you with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. God resurrects you. He made you alive. But even more than that, look at verse 6. He raises up with Christ. He lifted you up. But even more than that, it says God seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. He's given you a throne. Not tomorrow, but today. But even more than that, right, he's made us sons and daughters with Jesus, not tomorrow, but today. That's what it means to share a throne with Jesus. But even more than that, look at verse 7. He gives us a new future where we will know the incomparable riches of his grace as objects of his grace. Now, one author puts it like this. When you read this passage, it's as if eternity has been compressed into this present reality. In God's perspective, as He looks at you, you are the object of His mercy and love right now. He sees you as a loved son, as a loved daughter in His kingdom. Now, I and then the the author writes, I still see myself from the perspective of my present humanity and my sinfulness, my weakness, my failure, my shame. But God has so secured my eternal future, my eternal destiny, that He allows me to see that now, today, right now, I am an heir of God my Father. I am a loved son. I am a loved daughter and a possessor of the glories of His kingdom. My status is one of an enthroned son, enthroned daughter. Church, right now, you sit on a throne with Jesus And you will be an object of His grace into eternity, made alive with Jesus, raised with Jesus, and seated with Jesus, God's endless mercy flowing out of His love for you, securing you from start to eternity with Him. You know, um, when the kids were growing up, two of my favorite children's stories, uh, and I found them on the shelf uh, this last week as I was looking for some stuff. I've kept the books is Pinocchio and Marjorie Williams, the Velveteen Rabbit. Some of you have read that. Both stories, uh, Pinocchio and the the Velveteen Rabbit, they are stories of toys that want to be alive, that want to be real, right? Uh, In Pinocchio, you know the story, it's uh, just been released on Disney. He's told if he's a really, really good boy, he'll get to be real, he'll come alive, okay? In the Velveteen Rabbit, the rabbit is told... If you are loved enough, you'll find life. You'll come to life. And, and in the story of the velveteen rabbit, uh, the velveteen rabbit is almost destroyed, almost discarded and thrown into the fire. Because this is what happens to toys when they get old, right? Yeah, St. Vinny's into the bin. But because of the love of a little boy for him, at the very last moment, as he's about to be thrown into the fire, because he is loved, he comes alive. People all around us, they spend their lives trying to be Pinocchio, relying and depending on their good works to find significance, relying on their performance to be loved, relying on their achievements to be known, to, be, to have security, to feel alive. And that's the reason why all of us here in this room, we work so hard because it gives us significance. That's why we're driven to achieve, because it gives us worth. That's why we are always trying to please people, because we want to be loved in God's economy. We're velveteen rabbits, made alive, raised to new life, enthroned as His loved sons and daughters, because, not because we're good, not because we've performed, but because God has loved us in Jesus, made alive, raised with Him, seated with Him to be an object of His grace into eternity from death to life, from poverty to lasting riches, from homelessness to a throne, from lost orphan to loved son and loved daughter, from wrath to mercy. This is the foundation. Knowing what God has saved you from matters because it'll keep infusing your heart with thankfulness, gratefulness, whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, and knowing what God has saved you to will actually overflow your heart with joy. Whatever you're facing in life, look at what you have now been given And that will continue to overflow into eternity. So, church, always rejoice in His grace to you. That's the first foundation. Now, the second foundation, if you have your Bibles, look with me at verse 11 to verse 18. Uh, The second foundation that empowers God's mission to the world and God's ministry to the church within comes here in these verses, and Paul does the same thing. He looks back before he looks forward, okay? This is what you, where you were before, and this is where you are now because of Jesus and His saving work. And so, notice verse twelve. He looks back. You were separate from Christ, cut off from Jesus, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. In other words, um, Paul is saying you and I, we were outsiders. We were not insiders, right? We were excluded. You weren't part of God's people. You were not a recipient of His saving promises or blessings. You did not belong. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, I don't feel that I belong. Well, no one belongs in the Bible's economy. You are without hope and without God in the world. And here's what I want you to understand. God doesn't just save you to Himself. He doesn't just make you alive in Jesus, raise you up with Jesus, seat you with Christ. Notice, He saved you into a new community called the church. The outsider is brought in. The excluded is now included. The outcast is given a community. The homeless is given a family. See there? And again, it takes place through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 13, but now. I love those but nows in the Bible. Verse 13, but now. We read that before in verse 3, because we read that before in verse 4, because notice verse 4, we, we read there, but because of His great love for us. But here we read another, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, an outsider, excluded, lonely, homeless, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church, have you ever realized this? God has not just saved you to Himself. God has saved you into the community of the people of God, not to a life of independence, or isolation, me, myself, and I, my relationship with God, no, but to a life of belonging and inclusion, to a life lived out in community with others saved by the gospel. God's saving purposes for your life and my life is not just to bring you to himself, not just to make you a son or a daughter. His saving purpose for you, for your life, is to give you a family, to make you a brother and a sister to others in his family, which is why there's no such thing as a churchless Christian. Churchless Christians do not exist in God's economy. On the odd occasion, you know, people do say to me, I don't have to be part of a Christian community or church to be a Christian. I don't need to belong to a church to be a Christian. And and it's true because we know that we're saved by God's grace in the work of Jesus alone. We know that. But the reverse is also true. If you are a Christian you would be part of a church community. If you are a Christian, you would bind yourself to the church God has saved you to, because God has saved you into the people of God. The church, as it were, is the crater left behind by the gospel in your life and my life. Rejoice in His grace, but remember as well that we belong to Him, and we belong to each other. Notice how belonging is described, verse 13, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in verse 14, for He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls of hostility, is described in terms of unity, oneness, the differences removed, what divides, destroy. The Bible does not just say Jesus brings peace. It says He is our peace. Not just peace with God, but also peace with each other, verse 15. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity, one new people out of the two, thus making peace, the one people of God. Individualism and tribalism are actually the two enemies to God's mission to the world, and God's ministry to the church within, you know those two things: individualism and tribalism. Uh, individualism actually says, "I don't need the church, I don't need other people, I don't need other Christians," which is a nonsense because there's no such thing as a churchless Christian. It goes against the grain of the gospel. Uh, but that second enemy, tribalism, says, "My tribe is better than your tribe. My group is better than your group. My congregation is better than your congregation." You can only be part of my tribe. You know, if we click, we'll include you if you're good enough, smart enough, rich enough, cool enough, spiritual enough. If you wear the right clothes, if you share the same interests, if you meet our social standards, if you're the right age, if you're spiritual enough, we'll include you. And, and, and tribalism, if you've never realized this, is actually, tribalism is built on the spirit of comparison. And it's a spirit of comparison that justifies my standing, my superior standing, by looking down on yours. That gains its worth by deflating your worth. Tribalism achieves power by deflating and demonizing the other. You see, tribalism cannot operate without saying, our differences makes my tribe better than your tribe. We do things better, we're more enlightened, we know better, we're superior. Demonizing you makes us feel special. It affirms our our worth. And so tribalism cannot operate without saying, Our differences makes my tribe better. It's built on a spirit of comparison. And that's why in culture and society, we look all around us, and sometimes you find in the church as well, from racial prejudice to cultural imperialism to academic elitism to class distinction, even to banal comparisons that we hear all the time. You know, I'm friends with so-and-so because we click. All these are, are walls of division, and they work on the basis of comparison, we are always comparing. Now, when we compare, it leads to one of two things, isn't it? When you compare with the people around you, it always leads to one of two things. Either it makes us arrogant, it makes us proud because we're in the in crowd, we are on the inside. We're superior. Or it leads to resentment, it leads to anger, and it leads to despair because we feel we are on the outside, we are on the outer And so we think we're inferior to others, and it ends up doing one thing. It leads to the building of a wall of hostility, a wall that divides us, a wall that separates us. But what does the gospel do? The gospel actually destroys, it destroys that wall of hostility. It tears down this dividing wall. When you rejoice in His grace, you begin to see that all the people around you, they too are dead in their transgression and sin an object of God's wrath. But then when you look around, you must also remember you belong. As you remember you belong, you begin to see that like everyone else, you too were excluded before He included you. And so look at verse 13 and verse 17 to verse 18. We read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and preached to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him... We both, I love that, we both, we both, can you see that? We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. We belong equally to God, and we belong equally to each other in this church community because of Jesus. There is no insider and outsider in God's church. Have you ever realized that? There is no in crowd and there is no out crowd. The cross where Jesus' blood was shed levels and then unites us. And so you take today all those labels that divides us, all those labels that defines you and separates you from me, all those labels that enslaves us and divides us as we look at ourselves, as we look at others, and you write on top of that label, God's own son, God's own daughter, Bought by the blood of Jesus. In his book, uh, Life Together, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, I am a brother to another person through what Jesus Christ did for me and to me. The other person has become a brother to me through what Jesus Christ did for him. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Is Jesus that brings us together. Our community, he writes, with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for both of us. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else before us, everything that divides us, recedes. Why? Because the more clearly and purely Jesus is our treasure, the more everything else will recede. You know, you could actually substitute the word friend or friendship there as well. Because what Bonhoeffer is actually saying is that real Christian community... Real Christian friendship, real Christian unity or fellowship is grounded in what Jesus has done for me and to me and what Jesus has done for you and to you. And the measure of our community, our friendship, our fellowship is seen in how much Jesus and His saving work is treasured in our lives such that everything around around us, around us recedes and He becomes more and more of the treasure we share. The gospel removes our differences because it says we are both equally lost, but we're both equally loved because of Jesus. We're both equally excluded on the outside, but we're both equally included, brought to belong because of Jesus. And so, church, remember that you belong to God, and you actually belong to each other. That's number two. Now, lastly, look at verse 19 and verse 22. This is the third foundation that empowers our mission to the world and our ministry to each other within. It comes in verse 19 to verse 22, and and there we're told that God is actually present, and He's actively at work in His church among His people. God is not absent. The God who saves and gathers us into this new community called the church actually continues His work, not just in our lives, but in His church. I want you to notice how Paul ends this section very quickly, who reminds us of God's work of grace, right? So that's verse 19. He says, consequently... Because of what Jesus has done, you're no longer an outsider, you're an insider. You're members of his household. That's the Bible's way of saying, you're actually now part of his family, the church. You're sons and daughters in this family. And then notice verse 20, he reminds us that again, Jesus has made it possible, verse 20. Uh, It's a family not built on race or socioeconomic background. It's a family not built on age group or academic background. It's a family built on what? The teachings of the Bible right, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus as the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And then notice the third thing He tells us, God's purpose in doing this. Why is God doing this? What is God actually doing in our church, in His church community? Well, verse 21, verse 22 tells us His purpose in saving is to build a home, to build a family, a house built on Jesus, where Jesus joins us together, where we are rising to become the place where God dwells by His Spirit. That's why you notice verse 22, and in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. What is God doing in His church? Have you ever wondered? Well, God is making us, this church, the place where He lives by His Spirit. He comes to live with us. Now, normally if you're going to build a home, there are a couple of builders here, right? If you're going to build a home, unless you're a really bad, dodgy builder, right? you you don't look for scraps, right? You source the best. No one goes to the scrapyard to find materials to build their dream home. God builds His dream home using the discards. Has that ever occurred to you? God builds His dream home using the discards, the scraps. And then He comes to dwell in it. Uh, Did you know that when it comes to adoption, there is a category called hard-to-place children? Do you know that? You know, when it comes to adoption, there's such a category hard to place children. Uh, An article I read uh, last week in The Guardian writes hard to place children, according to stats, means these are the categories for hard to place children, means over the age of four boys, disabled children, black and minority ethnic children, and siblings. One of the most pressing issues for the adoption sector is to encourage adoptive families to offer these children a home, a family. I want to say this to you, church. In God's economy, there, is no, there are no hard-to-place children. Has that ever occurred to you? In God's economy, there are no hard-to-place children, and His purpose is to make them part of His family where He dwells with them, where He lives with them. You know, when a parent adopts an orphan or an unwanted child, what's the greatest gift a parent can give an unwanted child when they are adopted? What's the greatest gift they can give them? Is it a roof under their heads? Is it food on the table? Is it lots of toys? Is it an education? Well, it's much more. When a parent adopts an unwanted child, a discarded child, what's the greatest gift they can give them? It's a mom and dad. A home where they'll have a mom and dad there for them. Well, they experience the love of a mom and dad who will love them, protect them, provide for them, a mom and dad who will nurture and guide them. Have you ever wondered what God is doing here at Grace Point? He's building a family that is joined together by Jesus and is growing them up so that we will be a place where His presence as our Father is experienced and felt. Look at verse 21, in Him the whole house is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God is actively at work, making us a place not just worthy of His name, but a place where His unconditional love as our Father is experienced, a place where His unlimited wealth is poured out, a place where His lasting security is found, a place where His protection is available. Which is why, when we look around and we see deficiencies and problems and issues and challenges and weaknesses and sin and brokenness, it should not be a cause of despair. I don't know what your family is like. Our families are always exhausting, aren't we? In in all our families, because we don't belong to perfect families. But that's okay. Rest in God's grace, rest in God's presence. Why? Because God is at work building our family up around Jesus to be a place where His loving presence is experienced and felt. In your Bibles, have a quick look with me, right? You fast forward to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. And the church is actually called what? The church is actually called the bride of Jesus, the bride of Christ. And and in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to verse 27, uh, what you actually have there, we read of two things that God has done and what God is doing for His bride. Do you, know that? Do you know that? I don't think people realize this because we read there, Christ Jesus loved the church, His bride, and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, to set her apart for Himself. How oh, we know that. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus died for us. He shed His blood, right, to, to make us His. But then there's a second thing. But notice what is He doing now? He is presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. God is like, notice, a husband to his bride. He's people, the church. And what's he doing? He is working and serving to present her to himself as a radiant church, a pure church, removing her imperfections, her sin, her weakness, her blemishes. And so I want to say to you today, there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect home or a perfect family, a perfect Christian community. The Bible never teaches that the church is perfect. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the church is imperfect, dull and stained and wrinkled and blemish. But the Bible also teaches us that God is present by His Spirit, working to present us, His people, His bride, His church, to Himself, radiant, without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. He's perfecting his church. He's preparing his bride. He's building up his people. God is perfecting us, the church. God is preparing us, his bride. And so, rest in the knowledge that God is actually present by his Spirit and is at work here, growing us, his people. You know, the antidote to persevering as you serve in ministry at Grace Point when ministry seems unfruitful, the antidote to disappointment when people fail you in this church community, the antidote to despair when you grieve others in this church community, the antidote to frustration when your church community isn't what it should be. The antidote is to rest in God's presence because He's actually at work in your life and the life of the people around you. I am not the pastor of a perfect church at Grace Point, and neither am I the perfect pastor. I don't belong to the perfect Christian community. But I tell you what, I am the pastor of a church community that Jesus has died for to make His bride. That's us. And I'm the pastor of a church where God is present by His Spirit at work in the lives of my people, presenting them and working to present them radiant without stain, wrinkle, or blemish to Himself. And so I am resting in His presence, God at work in your life and my life, our lives. And so church, rest in God's presence at work in the lives of those around you in your life as God's people, as His bride, as His church. Now, I know it's Vision Sunday, and you know, I get asked this every time we do this vision thing. I always get asked on Vision Sunday, what are our grand plans for mission and ministry to grow the church? And I want to say to you, I'm not doing that. I'm not presenting grand plans to grow the church, because what we need most in the season we find ourselves in is not a vision of what God is calling us to do, but a vision of what God has done for us. This is the foundation. Make 2023 a year where you grow to rejoice in God's grace. We're loved, we're saved, objects of His grace into eternity. Make 2023 a a year where you remember we belong to God and to each other, and make 2023 a year where you grow more and more to rest in God's presence, knowing that He's with us and He's at work, growing us, building His people, His church here at Grace Point. Amen.